Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Jessica. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the traditional land of the Osage and the Ogapa. And today's text, 10, is set near Seattle, which is the land of the Coast Salish, Stillagamish, Duwamish, Muckleshoot, and Suquamish people. And Jessica, you are a guest on this lovely episode, and I am so excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> so you and I know each other because you have a podcast on the anatomy of a scream pod squad and it is all about horror novels exactly yes so you know YA literature and YA horror books especially are very near and dear to my heart yeah so tell me a little bit about that and uh where the genesis for monster books pod came from yeah um well my goal with monster books pod is to introduce adult horror fans to kids horror books um, because there's a lot of amazing literature out there not just in young adult but even younger age ranges as well you know going all the way down to you know picture books and board books Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of times adults think of kids books as kids books things that adults (laughs) wouldn't have any interest in you know i'm i'm over 18 that book holds no interest for me so i wanted to introduce older readers to books that they might have overlooked, might have written off, and let them know, you know, there's still some really scary stuff out there, some really challenging stuff out there that's written for a younger audience that you're missing out on things if you don't check them out, if you just write them off completely. So that was, that's my goal with the podcast is to recommend books for people based on different subgenres. Like I've covered cosmic horror and slashers and ghost stories, things like that. So if someone's, you know, a really big slasher fan, As an adult fan, maybe they can find a YA book that would appeal to them. And where does this all come from? I know one of the things that Brenna and I regularly do on this podcast is we try to elevate the same kinds of things where we're respectfully reading through and recommending some of these books that adult readers and also YA readers and librarians and teachers (laughs) and stuff may have missed. But I don't know, like I'm, I'm spending a ton of time just trying to keep my finger on the pulse and you seem to have a really natural ability to find both middle grade as well as YA texts and I'm just wondering like how do you do that oh gosh well thank you first of all (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I feel the exact opposite so it's flattering to hear you say that no honestly my entire adult life I've been obsessed with kids books um, so I've kind of always had an eye out for that kind of thing but you know there there are different areas of Twitter, as we all know, you know, there's horror Twitter, film Twitter, and there's right. middle, there's middle grade fiction Twitter, there's YA really? fiction Twitter. Yeah. Okay. And I find a lot of books on Twitter. I, I search for authors, I search for other bloggers, because I have a, a blog about kids books who are talking about books. And I, I look through trade announcements and, you know, acquisitions announcements, to, because I'll find a lot of things like that. Like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, a spooky middle grade book about a ghost? You sign me up. You know, I'm always going to look out for <laughs> things like that. So. You're like keyword search, ghost, middle right? grade. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and, you know, I have favorite authors or favorite publishers, some of the smaller um, imprints or smaller publisher houses that specialize in that kind of thing. I kind of keep an eye out for what they're doing. 
and I've got some publishers that I like to work with and I like to support who are specifically doing, you know, spooky things for kids. So I mainly Twitter, though, now is my kind of lifeline for finding that stuff. Yeah, it's a bit of a surprising repository where you really can go down a deep dive. I've had a bit of a similar experience where you find one writer or one critic or one, as you said, publishing imprint, and you just fall down this rabbit hole where you suddenly realize, oh, I'm following all of these great (laughs) authors or, oh, that person has a great blog and I just, you know, am constantly lifting recommendations from them. So Twitter becomes a surprisingly rich asset. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, as we all know, it can be kind of a hellhole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you if you curate your feed and you follow the right people and you look for the right things, it can be such a treasure trove of information and inspiration and community with people who like the same things that you like and can mm-hmm. recommend things to you. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, we have a text like today's, which is, <laughs> uh, as we mentioned off the top, it is 10 by Gretchen McNeil, and that came out in 2012. And then we also have the Lifetime film adaptation from 2017, which adds a subtitle on, so it becomes 10 Murder Island. <laughs> and I'm actually very excited to have this conversation with you because this is 100% the kind of text that my co-host, Brenna, would hate. So she does not like scary things. She does not like murder mysteries. And I think she would have had a lot of difficulty with this film. (laughs) Because it's... um... It's not the best. It's it's not. <laughs> yeah, I the best thing about the movie to me is the title. I love a, a ridiculous subtitle, Tin Murder mm-hmm. Island. So. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so very lifetime of them. It is. God bless them, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so have you read any Gretchen McNeil before this? No, actually. And this book I had had on my TBR list, my to be read list for quite a while, and I just hadn't gotten around to it. I think I even checked it out from the library once and had to return it unread because I had so much other stuff I was reading. Right. But this is my first experience with Gretchen McNeil. Okay. So I thought her writing style seemed familiar, but as I'm sure you're aware, if you started to read some of these YA thrillers, (laughs) they have a tendency to adopt a similar writing style. Yeah. So I read One of Us is Lying, and I think it has a sequel, which is like One of Us is Next or something like that. (laughs) and. I found the writing style very, very similar. But when I went through Gretchen McNeil's webpage to get a sense of, you know, how popular is she? And I was looking through some of her other books. I realized I have read another book of hers called Hashtag Murder Trending. And it's an interesting book as well, because it is about child criminals who are sent to an island and then they are picked off one by one. But it's almost like The Running Man, where it's being televised nationally as a bit of a game show. And... I remember being very excited by that book and similar in the way that I was excited to read 10, where she has a great hook, a great premise, reasonable characters, and then the plot just becomes really outlandish. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm I'm hesitant to say that, you know, the running theme with her work is that it is adaptations of other people's work but Mm -hmm. the fact that it's like the fact that you're like it sounds like the running man meets lord of the flies kind of and the fact yeah and the tin is an adaptation of and then there were none by agatha Mm -hmm. christie i think that's really interesting that she's kind of taking these properties and adapting them to a ya horror genre kind of 
Yes, absolutely. And have you read And Then There Were None? I have, yeah. I actually read it for the first time last year, so it was good preparation for this book. It diminished my enjoyment of 10 quite a bit because Mm. the plot was... It's so similar. (laughs) It's so similar. Yeah, I I really like the idea of taking an Agatha Christie book, especially And Then There Were None, and turning it into this teen slasher. Like, I think that is such a cool idea, but there weren't enough changes for me. So I I was kind of clocking the story beats like, okay, there's that red herring. There's that Mm -hmm. red herring. There's that, you know. So, But if someone hasn't read the Christie book, then perhaps everything would come as a big surprise and be a big shock to them. I'm not sure. Yes, I agree. Because I've actually never read the Christie book, but I've seen several film adaptations. So as soon as it begins, you kind of realize, oh, I'm familiar with this. I know how this is going to go. And I think part of the enjoyment of a text like this is that the body count is so high, which also means that the red herrings or the potential suspects can be so high. So there's Mm -hmm. enjoyment to be had in that. But also, as you start to whittle it down, you realize, oh, okay. This is pretty easy to figure out, actually. Right, yeah. (laughs) So if folks have not read 10 Murder Island, we'll give you a brief synopsis. It is centered around Meg, and she fancies herself a bit of an outsider because uh, she has a best friend named Minnie. Minnie is, correct me if I'm wrong, is she manic depressive or bipolar? Well, she's bipolar. Manic depressive is actually is the former term for someone with bipolar disorder. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, It refers to, you know, generally speaking, someone with bipolar disorder has manic episodes and depressive episodes, but it's not really a term that's used anymore to say, oh, she's manic depressive. Full disclosure, I have bipolar disorder. So this was an interesting read for me, Mm. seeing how it was depicted in the book. And we'll get into that in a minute. (laughs) But yeah, 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 she, yeah. (laughs) she has bipolar disorder. Okay, thank you. And that, mm-hmm. that's fantastic clarification, because we love to do educational bits on this, uh, particularly for folks who might be working with teens or might find themselves in situations where it's like, oh, okay, I don't know what the right term to use is. So right. thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Meg feels very grateful to Minnie because Minnie was friends with the popular kids. And then it came a point where the popular kids told Minnie she had to decide between them and Meg. And she chose Meg. So Meg feels very grateful to Minnie for being her friend because she was there when she didn't have anyone else. And this becomes a major plot point because Minnie is the one who has driven them to participate in this island getaway for a long weekend. There's no parents. It's just going to be kids part off the coast of Seattle and Meg is just not really sure why she's been invited and she feels like an outsider she's a writer so she thinks maybe I'll just bring my laptop I'll do a little bit of writing and unfortunately as soon as she arrives on the island with Minnie they discover oops Meg's former crush slash current crush slash secret love that she can't say anything about TJ is also there and of course Minnie also has a crush on TJ so we set up this sort of love triangle right from the beginning and feel free to interject at any point here yeah you're, you're doing great but I'm I'm, I'm waiting <laughs> to see if there's anything I need to jump in with <laughs> Right. So um, we're introduced to this cast of characters and Meg actually doesn't know most of them because they actually come from three different schools. So one of them is hers that she goes to with Minnie and TJ. But then there's a couple of kids that she doesn't know who come from another school. And no one is really sure how they all got this invite. And they're waiting for the host, Jessica, to explain. But she has missed the last 
Cherry and there is a storm brewing. So they all just say, okay, we're going to hunker down for the evening and we'll figure things out in the morning. And to pass the time, they watch a DVD. And there's only one. It is unmarked. And it's a weird art school kind of project that no one really understands. And then one of the characters freaks out because she has gotten something from it. Uh, She feels threatened by it. So she goes to bed and everybody kind of packs it in. And then the next morning, that character whose name is Lori is discovered and she has died by suicide from a hanging. And from there, we slowly start to pick the characters off one by one. We reveal that they all have a secret connection to a student who died named Claire Hicks. And Claire feels that they have all wronged her in some way. And at the end, it is revealed that one of the mentions that she had in her diary, which Meg finds in her room in the house, Meg discovers that Claire was in love with TJ because of course everyone was in love with TJ. And <laughs> she also had a brother. And it is revealed that one of the characters, Ben, is actually Tom, Claire Hicks's brother. So the girl who died by suicide. And her brother has been killing these people off in ways that the diary suggested they be punished for hurting Claire and ultimately causing her to kill herself. Yeah, so now we can just kind of talk about what we liked about the book, what we didn't like about the book. And (laughs) I feel like you dangled it. So why don't we talk about one of the main issues that I feel we both had, which was the depiction of bipolar in this. Yes. Um, So in the book, Meg feels, as you mentioned, she feels a lot of responsibility towards Minnie because Mm -hmm. Minnie chose her over the cool kids. She chose her over a life of popularity and, you know, kind of running the school. So she takes it upon herself to be Minnie's caretaker. Yes. And they mention in the book that Minnie was not diagnosed as bipolar, was not showing a a lot of symptoms when she and Meg first met. And it is really common for bipolar disorder to come on in later adolescence. So that was, I think, a realistic depiction of things. Mm -hmm. One of of the few things I think it got right, to be honest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Meg kind of becomes her nurse in a way uh she's always reminding her to take her medicine always asking her if she took her medicine which i will be honest is a trigger for me Mm. because uh sometimes well-meaning people asking if you've taken your medicine can be very insulting and very uh, condescending and i wouldn't recommend doing it to be honest but um she's always you know minding minnie's medicine minding her moods watching her moods even McNeil writes in the book that Minnie's parents asked Meg to look after her and make sure she's doing all this stuff, mm-hmm. which is, you know, irresponsible on so many levels of the parents right? to do that. <laughs> like, we're not going to take care of our daughter. We're, why don't you make sure she's okay? So we don't, we can just go take well, our boat or something. I don't know what they do. but And it also really suggests that Minnie herself is incapable because she suffers from this condition as though it somehow renders her less than capable of looking after herself. As you said, I found that very insulting, as though, oh, okay, because you have a condition, you all of a sudden no longer can take care of yourself. You need someone else to look after you. Exactly. It is very infantilizing. It's very insulting. You know, at every turn, it seems like she suggests that 
Minnie just cannot take care of herself. And there's a lot of ableist language. Some of mm-hmm. it is some of it is called out. Like when another character calls Minnie crazy and Meg objects and says she's not crazy. But then Meg herself uses some ableist language to talk yep. about, you know, if Meg is going to have a panic attack or, you know, Meg also has anxiety. And the book suggests that this, every single thing sets Meg off, or excuse me, sets Minnie off on a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And she can't possibly handle it. Meg has to jump in and save her. And she's just, she's portrayed as just completely erratic, mm-hmm. you know, not not capable of taking care of herself, not capable of monitoring her own moods. You know, something when you have bipolar disorder, you are very aware of shifts in your mood and how to handle that. And Gretchen McNeil makes it seem like Minnie isn't capable of doing that. She's just completely erratic all the time, irrational, you know, all these synonyms for crazy, as they say Mm -hmm. in the book. And it really bothered me. I won't lie. That depiction really bothered me that she's just seen as basically this infant that Meg has to carry around and look after her entire life. Yeah. And there is a revelation near the end of the book where it's clarified that the reason Minnie is behaving the way she is, is actually because Ben slash the Tom character, so the Mm -hmm. brother of the girl who instigated all of this drama, he has actually swapped out Minnie's pills. So Mm -hmm. she has been going for about a week without her proper medication. So there is a kind of explanation from McNeil about why Minnie has been behaving the way she is. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't excuse the depiction of the way that Meg and the others treat Minnie. If anything, it just kind of says, oh, well, they should have been more thoughtful of her. Right, yeah. And honestly, if someone is on medication for bipolar disorder, they need to take it as prescribed. But the suggestion that, you know, being off your pills for a week is going to turn you into mm-hmm. what, what is depicted as a lunatic, you know, yes. is itself a dangerous suggestion, I think. Yeah, I think one of the challenges, too, is because this is such a condensed narrative, right? We're mm-hmm. we're meeting all of these characters. There's 10 of them in total that we get to know over the course of these three days. I mean, we get a certain amount of backstory, but it doesn't give us enough insight into who these characters are outside of the affairs that surround Claire Hicks right. or their relationship to each other at school. So mm-hmm. it's very brief and tangential and... I think one of the things that I needed more of with regard to Meg and Minnie's relationship is I needed to know, like, how did Minnie normally react? Was she a little bit paranoid? Was she a little bit lovesick most of the time? Like, we get inferences of it, but because it's also filtered through Meg's first-person voiceover, because this is a first-person narrator— it's always filtered through Meg's kind of disdain for having to look after Minnie and feeling like she can't pursue TJ because it would hurt Minnie and really what a sacrifice she's making. Right. Yeah. And there are small hints of Meg saying, what's going on with Minnie? She's acting a little different. But mm-hmm. for the most part, she portrays it as, oh, that's just Minnie being Minnie again. That, And you're like, that is not how it works. You know? <laughs> <laughs> It's like a textbook case of how not to treat someone with a mental illness. Right. Yeah. Nobody respects Minnie. Nobody treats Minnie like she has any agency of her own. They just do everything to, you know, condescend to her and treat her like somebody who can't take care of herself. And someone who, like you said, who is less than because of her Mm -hmm. illness. Yeah. And we should probably clarify, I don't want to sound like I'm coming down super, super hard on this book, but... (laughs) 
I think Minnie is the worst representation, but I also don't feel like any of the other characters are that much better. Like, because there are 10 characters, there are several people in here where they're more or less defined strictly by one single identifying characteristic. So Nathan is the bad guy who (laughs) has used Claire so that he could pass an exam. And that is the reason that he has to die. And his friend Kenny is even less of a character because he is only referred to really as Nathan's friend. You know, Lori is, she's the girl who is a singer. That's what we know about her. The character of Vivian is the debate club girl who is very straight-laced and kind of A-type personality. She needs to be in control. So everybody has one thing that they are defined by, and they have to kind of stay in that lane. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think Kenny is just the big guy, you know? And yeah, what like, you got? Uh, hmm. they're, very, they're very stock characters. And if the book had leaned into it more, like, there's very much an 80s teen movie vibe in terms yes. of... Yes! She's the, the prim girl with the pearls and the sweater set, and mm-hmm. he's the jerk, and he's the jock, and, you know, the, the jock, but the sensitive jock is, you know, in terms Ooh, of yeah. TJ, you know, yeah. there's <laughs> the punk girl with the striped arm warmers, you know, <laughs> like, oh, there's, they're yeah. all, right? And I was like, is that still a thing? Like, it sounds like something from, right? <laughs> I was like, is it 1998 at Hot Topic? I don't, I, right. I had to double check the year on the book. I, I, like you, I really don't want to seem like I'm just bashing the book, but I did have a lot of problems with it. It was fun. And I do, I do kind of like sometimes that idea of riffing on 80s stock characters, like mm-hmm. the nerd, the jock, the prim girl, the punk girl. But I don't think it did enough with that. I think it just kind of used those stock characters and it was like, well, I'm done. And, yeah. you know, didn't put a lot of energy into playing with that idea. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I yeah. Like, yeah. Everybody's kind of one dimensional. I will say the other big issue that I struggled with is... And this is a tricky point, because particularly with movies, and we'll get to the movie in a minute, I don't have as much of an issue if the characters are unlikable. I find in this mix there's a couple characters who are really unlikable, a couple who are fine, but we're spending all of this time inside Meg's head, and I won't lie, hearing her whine about how (laughs) she wants to hook up with TJ as the bodies are literally (laughs) falling around her... I really struggled to connect with this main character. <laughs> yeah, like, I, there there were times where I was like, oh my god, just shut up and... Right? Yeah, just shut up. <laughs> just shut up! <laughs> Girl, you need to prioritize your survival and less with the kissy kissy. <laughs> right, exactly. Like... She calls attention to it, like, I know I should be worried about the seven corpses in the hallway, but... And I'm mm-hmm. just because you draw attention to it doesn't mean it's okay, Meg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think at the end, it is in service of that kind of twist, where yeah. we wonder for a hot second, is it actually TJ who is the killer? And I think, again, if you hadn't read And Then There Were None, you might be convinced, okay... It could be TJ. He could be the bad guy who has actually plotted this murder weekend. But because we know that Ben has died early and seemingly out of nowhere compared to the other characters, right? the red herring flag just immediately went off for him. So I was like, oh, right. Okay. That's how this killer is getting away with it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I even wondered for a second, I was like, is she going to just completely mess with our heads and actually make it TJ? Because that would be mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Yes. But then, no. <laughs> no. 
There's very little subversion, unfortunately, in the book. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I had another problem um, with the book. I I felt like there were some some passages that were really racist. Oh, really? Yeah, like, I took some notes um, just to make sure I remember the spots where it happened. First of all, this may be completely off base, but TJ in the book is black, and his Mm -hmm. name is Thomas Jefferson Fletcher. And Gretchen McNeil is a white author, and I just, the idea of a white person naming a, a black person Thomas Jefferson didn't sit right with me, to be perfectly honest with you. Right. Given what we know about Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, that is an odd choice. Nathan is the jerk, you know, and he says something, he makes some stupid crack about TJ should die first because he's the black guy and the black character always oh, dies right. first. Yeah. And Meg comes back and says, well, would you say that Lori should help you with your math homework because she's Asian? And just kind of adding unnecessary racism to call out racism coming from Mm -hmm. a white person. It felt kind of like a self-insert moment, like, look at me being anti-racist. But it felt very cringy to me. I I could be totally off base here, but it just felt very cringy. Like, look at me not being racist. No, I I definitely remember hitting pause at that moment in the book as well and thinking, I wonder if this is an attempt at being metatextual, you know, in the wake of Scream, like one of her books is described as something meets Scream. So I think McNeil herself is aware of some of these tropes of particularly the slasher or the whodunit genre. Mm-hmm. And I think she thinks, oh, this is me being self-aware. I'm going to make a crack about how savvy I am. But it uh, unfortunately comes off as, why do we need to have this in here? Yeah, yeah. I was, um, not to jump too far ahead, but I was, I highly suspected that they would just cut that completely from the movie. And they did. Because I was yeah. like, that, that's not necessary. It, it just felt like a very cringy moment of look at me look how woke i am and it just mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. What, what's the word i'm looking for um <laughs> ill-advised yes there you go in an ill-advised manner <laughs> well since we're maybe bridging it into the film why don't we shift our discussion okay that sounds good oh this is beautiful no stealing game kind of way it's a suicide no this is not a coincidence someone here did it i think this is funny killer Everyone, one by one. One of us is next. You lied to me. (laughs) Okay, so 10 Murder Island, as I mentioned, is from 2017. It is written and directed by Chris Robert, and it aired on Lifetime. So not to be dismissive, but it does have a bit of that lifetime look and feel to it. Mm-hmm. So it has China and McLean as Meg. So we so we switch the race of our main character. So uh, Meg is now a black woman. We've got Rome Flynn as TJ, Cassidy Guilford as Minnie. It took me a moment to realize Cassidy Guilford the reason she looks familiar is because she is Kathy Lee Gifford's daughter. What? Yeah. Because I, I was like, oh, she looks very familiar. Everyone else, I was kind of like, I think I know that that one actress is from The Descendants and so on. But mm-hmm. yeah, Callan McAuliffe. Ooh, I mispronounced that. As Ben. <laughs> Zach Steiner as Gunner, who is uh, TJ's best friend. I realize we haven't said half these characters' names, but they're just not that important, They're just cannon fodder, honestly. A little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Annie Q as Kamiko, Dylan Arnold as Nathan, Matt Mercurio as Kenny, 
Raquel Castro as Lori, Meg Keschel as Vivian, and Katja Martin as Claire Hicks, who is presented in flashbacks to make the diary entries a little bit more cinematic. Mm-hmm. So, Jessica, what did you think of our Lifetime film? Honestly, I was hoping for a little more death of a cheerleader drama and um i didn't get it you know more of the mother may i sleep with danger just yes didn't you want it to be a little more ridiculous i did i wanted it to be so so ridiculous and i didn't get that i was disappointed to be honest because i was like yes a lifetime movie called 10 murder island this is going to be bonkers this is going to be just the wildest most I'm, I'm trying to reduce my own ableist language. It's something that I fall back on and I'm trying to reduce it. And I'm trying not to say things like insane and crazy. I hear you. I'm struggling with that so much now. Yeah. As yeah. soon as you start to recognize it, you realize how frequently people say it. And yeah, I'm falling back on bonkers and bananas quite often. Right? Yeah. Like I, you realize how much you use it and how little vocabulary you have. Mm-hmm. To, to to get your point across because so if i you know drop out and try to kind of struggle for words that's what i'm doing i'm trying to yeah you're something. checking yourself yeah, yeah 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 but anyway yeah i wanted it to be just balls to the wall lifetime movie and i didn't mm-hmm. get it <laughs> yeah it's a little weird to say this as though it's a negative thing but this is a relatively straightforward adaptation and i think like you i was really hoping we would get a bit more camp a little bit more sense of fun and play and they really just lean into no this is people getting whittled down one by one and these so-called teens are (laughs) so-called scared of their lives right yeah and (laughs) It was really strange reading the book and then watching the movie pretty much immediately after I finished mm-hmm, the book mm-hmm. because they just <laughs> lift entire scenes, yes, wholesale, just verbatim, the dialogue and everything, and they just burn through the plot as fast as they can. And there's no time to breathe. Like no. um, Some of the things that I thought might have stretched out a little too long in the book where people took too long to figure things out where it became so obvious, you know, you're in a house with someone in the choir and someone on the debate team, and mm-hmm. you, read a, you read a diary about a choir and a debate team, but you don't connect the dots. It's <laughs> a little slow in the uptake when it comes to realizing, oh, whose diary is this? Oh, yeah. that person sounds eerily familiar to a person from this passage. <laughs> yeah, not a, good, a born detective, that one. But, no, but in the movie, no. she's so fast. She's, you know, Columbo. She connects the dots almost before she gets the clues because they have to go through you know, 300 pages of plot in an hour and 22 minutes. Mm-hmm. So they, they make all these leaps of logic that kind of give you whiplash a little bit sometimes. Oh, yeah. There's a moment where Vivian, the girl who was on the debate team, and here she's just a mean A-type personality girl. Mm-hmm. She has gone over a ledge and down a steep embarkment <laughs> and she has died. In the book, it's much more dramatic. She's actually been impaled through the back with uh, a, a block of wood. Mm-hmm. And here she's just fallen down a hill because we don't have the budget for it. <laughs> but Meg takes a look at this rope and she just immediately says, oh, this was cut. <laughs> right, yeah. In, in the book, it's a piece of a wooden railing where you can yes. see saw marks and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the idea that if this flimsy piece of rope that looks about as sturdy as dental floss is all that keeps you from falling to your death on this gentle hill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I kind of loved the low budget. Oh, oh no, I can't survive this gentle roll down a four yes. foot hill, you know? <laughs> so I appreciated that. Gentle 20 degree incline. Right? 
mind. <laughs> oh, I loved that part. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I, I did kind of enjoy some of the budget cut moments because they're, instead of this amazing storm of the century, because they're stuck on an island in the book in the middle of the storm and they're cut off and they yes. have to brave, you know, hurricane force winds and stuff. But in the mm-hmm. movie, they're just kind of walking down a hiking trail with the yep. birds chirping and the sun shining. I, oh boy, <laughs> I, I really did have a good laugh at a couple of those moments because there is one part where in the book, yeah, it's meant to be, okay, well, there's a house nearby and we saw lights and there was a party happening. So maybe we can get to them after the power's been cut and we've been isolated from civilization. So we'll go to this other house. We'll see if we can use their phone. Sure. Makes sense. And in the film, they come out and it looks like the production team has dropped a half-sawed tree trunk onto the ground. <laughs> and it is clear as day. You can hear birds chirping <laughs> as they're walking. And it looks glorious. And they're talking about, oh my gosh, we're cut off. And the storm is just getting worse. <laughs> yeah, And there's even a moment where they show a really broad view of the atmosphere and it looks like something from, like, if Ed Wood made Independence Day. It's this right. really weird, like, funnel cloud mm-hmm. on this beautiful day with blue skies, no clouds in the sky, and then this weird funnel cloud right in the middle that's supposed to show this storm approaching them. And I really liked that shot just because it was so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a good amount of ridiculous, but unfortunately it's not the savvy wink-wink, nudge-nudge that I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. It's more... No, we're we're trying to convey a sense of menace and danger here, <laughs> but we just don't have the production time. And also, we need to finish making this movie in five days. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely them just hanging out in a house for a couple of days and then walking on that hiking trail for a couple of days and mm-hmm. crawling around inside a boathouse for the last day. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> for the most part, I didn't know a lot of these actors. I know no. Meg, China and McLean, from Black Lightning, the DC superhero show. Yeah. I thought she was okay, but the character of Meg is, I mean, she's just not a great character. So there's only so much you can do with her. Exactly. Most of them don't have much to work with, unfortunately. No, no. There were two moments that I really liked when Vivian is trying to get Meg to make the salad, which sets Mm -hmm. up, you know, Ben's supposed uh, allergic reaction. She basically orders Meg to make the salad and she says, oh my God, thanks. And then her smile drops immediately. It was this perfect, like, Mm -hmm. mean girl moment that made me laugh out loud. Yeah. I think it was like the only intentional laugh that the movie got out of me the whole time. So I really enjoyed that. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And then at the end, when Ben is giving his requisite murderer spiel where he lays out his entire plan to Meg to give her enough time to escape and, you know, talks about how brilliant he is. I I kind of enjoyed how much he was reveling in that. I I feel Mm -hmm. like the actor was enjoying having something to work with for once. Especially because he isn't very interesting before that. So it's a very clear distinction when he's play acting the nice guy and now getting to revel in his bad boy homicidal murder role. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I I honestly think he did a good job of that. I was enjoying watching him. Like I would have rather have seen him just explain his plan for an hour, 22 minutes than watch it unfold. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to see him set it all up because there was so Mm. much prep work into murdering these 10 people. Right? Like the research he had to do. And yeah, I would love to see like 
a prequel, I guess, where it's just him setting up all these booby traps and. Oh, I'm yes, yeah. I am fascinated by the idea of the groundwork that murderers have to do to execute their plans. Right. You know, they've got those one of those boards with you know pictures and plans and strings everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about, like conspiracy theory boards, yes, like planning absolutely. everything out. Uh-huh. I would watch the hell out of that. Oh, like. yeah. <laughs> so what we're saying is we want a 10 Murder Island prequel <laughs> with none of these characters except for Ben slash Tom. Exactly. Yeah, you can even make it a mini series, like one episode per victim where he plots out how to kill them. That I would watch that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you need to give it a proper budget. Yeah, right. Yeah. He needs more than like a small walking trail and a, a string of rope. Right. And a... Was that boat made out of cardboard? I do love that in the <laughs> in the book, we end with this massive fiery escalation of this <laughs> expensive boat that gets lit up. And in the TV show, this is a land docked. Honestly, it looked like it was made out of wood by the production crew. And they can't light it up because they don't have a budget to do a fire. So we just end with Meg beating this character to death with an empty gasoline can and then she and tj just walk out exactly yeah and you know they're rescued by the coast guard at the end and obviously no helicopter shows up in the movie because they couldn't afford a helicopter no so they just kind of sit on the ground and oh and then it it ends with this bizarre you know the end dot 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 question mark tone because it goes back to the house with all this ominous music playing and it's showing because Ben had been writing numbers one through 10 on the wall to mark off the victims as mm-hmm. they died. And it focuses on each number in turn. And then it kind of zooms out to look at the house and the music still playing. And you're like, are they trying to say that Ben's still alive? Are they setting it up for a, an even cheaper sequel? What's happening here? Yeah, because A, he didn't kill 10 people because that would have mm-hmm. required him to kill TJ and Meg. Right. So why do we have all these numbers? And also Ben's dead. And what <laughs> right yeah i was like what? wait where are we going with this we it got interesting again for a second but not for the reason they think it is I don't no know. <laughs> you, you can tell they're trying to end it on a fun visual and it does look good it's got oh, yeah. you know it's arguably one of the more tense slash scary kind of memorable visuals in the entire film mm-hmm. but it doesn't make a lick of sense <laughs> exactly like if the rest of the movie had matched that i would have enjoyed it a lot more like yes because it, it's so cool and creepy and it's a little campy because it's like mm-hmm. dun 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 yes. you know <laughs> uh. but yeah the rest of the movie didn't match up to it though no, sadly not. Yeah. But it does give us an opportunity to play some fun YA bingo with this text and film. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so Jessica, you don't have to give me all of them all at once, but do any of the bingo squares match either the film or the book? Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ableism. Yes, unfortunately. Yes house porn because it's supposedly a massive estate on an island mm-hmm. dead body for sure oh yes yeah <laughs> uh let me see was this filmed in canada filmed in the territory now known as canada that's a good question i wasn't able to figure that out but i wouldn't be surprised i'm not sure anyway it wouldn't surprise me but yeah <laughs> we'll put you that know what? We'll, we'll do it as a goodwill box there you How's go that? there you go <laughs> Let's see. Uh, There are a lot of uh, ones on here that I would like to be able to include, but I can't. Oh, hollow friendships and romances. Absolutely. Yes. 
bless them for trying to force the chemistry between Meg and TJ. Uh, it's not there. No. And also this friendship between Meg and Minnie is basically defined by, oh, I want to like my friend, but I wish she would bugger off so I could pork this guy. <laughs> Oh, a grand basis for a friendship. But yeah, you mm-hmm. never really get the sense that they've ever liked each other. Uh, not really. It's like friends by default since seventh grade. Right. Yeah. Which I mean is which can be realistic because you kind mm-hmm. of in grade school are just kind of friends because of your proximity to people, not because you actually like them or have anything in common with them. Yes. But it doesn't really explore that. It's just like, oh, we've been best friends forever because she chose me for some reason over her other friends. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say we've got an inclusion flip because we have cast Meg uh-huh. as a woman of color for the mm-hmm. film. Yes. And then we're on a bit of borrowed time because hypothetically all these murders have to be committed by the end of the weekend. So True. it's a three day timeline. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not sure if you would agree with me on this, but we could put down inauthentic voice because Gretchen McNeil clearly does not uh, have a good handle on her bipolar character. Yeah, and I wanted to bring this up when we were discussing the book, but there were a couple of times, other than the striped arm warmers, uh, where I I kind of thought, how old is this author? Because at one point, one of the kids refers to a beer as a brewski. Yeah, again, that seems like a very 80s reference, right? right? I was like, this feels like kind of a revenge of the nerds. Like, that's I haven't heard that since John Hughes movies. Mm-hmm. And I can't speak for the youth of today, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody call a beer a brewski in like 30, 40 years. No. no. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm looking at the rest of the board and I don't know that I see any more. Yeah. Okay. So not a bingo match, mm-hmm. sadly. <laughs> oh, too bad. We had high Uh, hopes for you, Tin Murder Island. Right? (laughs) Well, Jessica, this has been absolutely delightful. And I would love for people to be able to track you down and give you their thoughts on Tin Murder Island, or maybe (laughs) to listen to your podcast or follow your writing. So how would they do so? You can find me on Twitter pretty much all day, every day, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> um, the Monster Books podcast has its own Twitter account. It's Monster Books Pod on Twitter. And my main Twitter account where I talk about silly things, but also talk about horror and share my writing um, is at We Who Walk Here. All one word, We Who Walk Here. Excellent. All right. So folks, you can also find all that info in the show notes. Make sure to give Jessica a follow and sample the podcast because it honestly is super delightful. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can do so at the hashtag HKHSpod. And if you have something longer, you can always reach us via email at HKHSpod at gmail.com. And, you know, do that old rate and review and all that other fun jazz stuff because it's good for the show. (laughs) So next week, Brenna is finally back after her brief sabbatical and we're going to be reinstating the order that we had initially talked about. So we're going to be tackling the Vampire Diaries as we had initially discussed. So stay tuned for that. All right. Well, thanks again, Jessica. This was honestly so much fun. And... I feel like I should apologize to you because I didn't have you come on to talk about a legitimately good book or film, (laughs) but I really enjoyed the discussion. 
I did too. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. I'm I'm really flattered that you had me on. Oh, honestly, pleasure was all mine. But uh, with that said, I think that we can put a capper in 10. So folks, I will see you on the page and see you on the screen. 